Hi and welcome to another episode of Seeking Sustainability Live, a podcast brought to you from Hiroshima, Japan, where I am. I'm your host, JJ Walsh. This talk show is about the innovation and expert knowledge from across Japan and even around the world as it relates back to Japan in terms of sustainability, finding a balance between people, planet, and profits to move forward in positive and proactive and innovative ways to the new challenges that we face in our lives. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Akiba and Jacinta, who are programmers. Here we talk about their interesting and innovative and sustainability building projects for community as well as for wildlife and planet in Japan and around the world. Everything from farming to water levels for the Dalai Lama to protecting wildlife in Africa to following the sewage line in Egypt to Michael Jackson's costumes. So there's a lot to talk about here. This is a great conversation. Please enjoy. Uh, thanks you guys for joining. It's so great to have you here. I'm a big admirer of your work. Um, one of my first questions, which I think I warned you about is, how did you get interested not only in hacking or programming, but into following more of a social impact sustainability type of of road in your career who wants to go first (laughs) (laughs) i've um i mean i've been involved in technology for over 20 years um and got really interested in it um sort of at university when um when the internet was starting to really kick in um and what i loved about it was just the the autonomy and the way you could explore and create and learn and share and there was this sense of potential but also you know you could jump in and take things apart build things together there there was so much um exploration that you could do on your own and it was open and people were really generous with sharing knowledge how to program and that kind of stuff so um, and then since then I've kind of moved around in different kinds of areas of technology. So from the, the software programming side of it, the website of it, the database, the server. Um, and then as hardware opened up to become more and more accessible, especially through platforms like Arduino, um, I started to get interested in creating devices that I could like, um, could also, for example, just tack onto some books that I might be writing or create little things um, on my own and then yeah started up with um, hackerspaces because that was a great place to learn and to share and to do projects and collaborate with others um, that that's my 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 tech experience so maybe I could you want to go through <laughs> your tech and then we'll answer the second part of the question <laughs> <laughs> well I think like uh, I I've been involved in technology for a long time on the like because you know I started out doing like chip design like i like semiconductor design and um like and uh programmable logic hardware soft like firmware i think um i i kind of got disillusioned because like a lot of people were just doing technology for technology's sake and i think that um it's it's it wasn't very interesting just to make something that was kind of you know that was kind of novel or something like i think that there had like for me i spent a lot of time trying to find like a deeper uh meaning in in technology just so that i could feel like uh so that there was you know so it was there was more purpose for me to like try and get better at it and so like you know and so we we ended up you know kind of in uh environmental monitoring and conservation technology as well as um technology for like say the developing world and um you know and so i i feel like uh rather than have like rather than trying to do bleeding edge bleeding edge technology i think what 
Jacinta and I really look for is like, what is the what is the context for the technology? And I think that's more important than the actual technology. <clears throat> I, I think um, I um, I don't come from a computer science background or a electrical engineering background, um, and so what I what I enjoy looking at, um, and also it's it's provides a lot of meaning. So building, I guess, on what Akiba was saying is that um, it was great to be able to build and create things, but then it's kind of like, so what? <laughs> um, and so after a while, it became more and more interesting and more meaningful to talk to people that have got some real problems or to look <laughs> behind some really big issues to see how the skills and the things that, that I enjoy and, and Akiba enjoy doing just playing around how that can actually bring value and change for, for better so um and also you get to learn you, there's a lot of knowledge exchange so you're working with subject matter experts who run really really deep especially in you know from soil through to you know wildlife research and you know and just to be around people that are that are doing amazing stuff and being able to contribute um in our way is really really rewarding yeah, that's great. Well, you guys have, I mean, we're just going to talk about a handful of interesting projects that you guys have worked on, but you guys are so connected, not only in Japan, but across the world to some of these projects. And they're so impressive in taking care of the environment, conservation, like you said, farming, wildlife in Africa. So let's dive in and, and talk about some of these amazing projects. Uh, can we talk about Hacker Farm at first? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, like, I guess, I guess, okay, I guess, uh, Jacinta, do you want to talk about it? Do you want me to talk about it? No, no, I think you, I think you should talk about Hacker Farm. Uh, okay, yeah, so, well, actually, I guess to understand Hacker Farm, then it's probably better to understand um, the first hacker space that Jacinta and I kind of helped start and um, were involved in was Tokyo Hackerspace. Um, and I think it was a really good experience because that was our first kind of, uh, <clears throat> uh, like kind of community technology, like working and collaborating in a, in a technology community. And then, um, but I think that uh, like there's no like so everybody was working on kind of like small projects that like they thought were kind of interesting or something but also that like um it was like a i think it was just a bit like when i was like before when i was saying like technology for technology's sake it was kind of like that and so um it, there was a chance to get some property in the countryside and then so we, we discussed the potential to start a hackerspace in the countryside, which would give a uh, specific context, like, and that context would be like agriculture and uh, deal, like how can technology be applied to rural things? And I think that's when we kind of got the seedling of Hacker Farm. <laughs> uh, it's I, like, I think I, everybody I, probably <laughs> logged off by now. I like I like the pun. No, I get it. I get it. Um, I think, um, I think I, the other I, thing to, to say into to that is also is that at the time of Tokyo Hackerspace, it was just when hackerspaces were starting to really grow and and be started across the world. And I think that there's a bit of a evolution of the hacker movement into a maker movement, into a broader movement, and all these branches. Now they've definitely logged off. <laughs> um, <laughs> Have, um, have have really grown. And I think um, with Hacker, Hacker Farm as well, there was a group of people, um, some were already living in the countryside that were involved in technology. So there was a little bit of a movement towards a different kind of lifestyle as well, one where there was a bit more space, um, things weren't as um, space constrained um, as, you, as you get in, say, um, cities like Tokyo. Um, and with that comes different kinds of, I guess, things that you can do and different sort of areas you can be involved in. And so Hacker Farm's really grown and developed in many different ways. Um, but it's 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 a journey in it. And there's been a lot of people that have contributed to that journey as well, who've, who've sort of come, who've gone, who've stayed and that kind of thing as well. 
What is it that you found yourself doing with Hacker Farm? Like, was it mostly irrigation, like monitoring uh, minerals and chemicals in the ground? I mean, what, what kinds of things specifically did you find yourself doing with technology at the farm? Uh, I'll, I'll take this one um, if, if that's okay. Like, uh, I think that like initially we really didn't know what, what we were doing. And I think the idea was just to create a communal project space, but with a built-in uh, context and application, applications. Cause I think it basically like being out in the countryside, you kind of have built-in problems that you can already deal with just like right outside your door. Um, like there is like aging population, um, like there's like farmers that are like 80 years old and, you know, and so can we make things a bit easier for them? You know, the answer is no, because they're not really interested in technology. So, um, <laughs> but, uh, I think that like, you know, there's, so like, um, I, to answer your question, I don't think we really knew what we were doing. And it kind of like, it started out like more, like more emphasis on hacker, less emphasis on farm. And then as it progressed, then actually we're more involved on the farming side. And then we just implement like whatever, like the technology that's, that we need to, but there's not really a focus on it. And I would say even, oh, well, I just, one more thing is, I would say even now it's more, we look more at like just into said lifestyle and also maybe the the chain the food chain of you know like gr like growing and production and then processing and um things related to that and technology just kind of fits in more as like a something that can facilitate some of it but it's not really the main focus I think what we discovered as well, and even here in Australia, you see it, that um, there's a lot of similarities between farmers and people growing and working on the land and hackers in the sense that you look around at the available materials you've got, you take things apart, you put things together, you adapt things to a specific need. So even here in Australia, for example, one of the farmers had got an old spa and hooked it up so that it would wash the lettuce so, because you can put it on a really gentle, <laughs> gentle <laughs> bubbles. Um, so, you know, and and you know, I've seen I've seen washing machines used to to do the same sort of thing. So, um, so there's a lot of synergies as far as approach and methodology in that kind of way. And um, so, what we found was that we were getting less and less um, from the kind of the latest cutting edge because it often simply doesn't work in the field until it's been proven proven and 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 tested and things are muddy and it, so <laughs> so we kind of really went back to basics we kind of joke about it but we're like yesterday's technology for today's deployment <laughs> you know, that's our we i remember like one of our first projects that we did was called tech rice and then we were going to like automate the uh monitoring the water levels in rice paddies for farmers and you know and so we kind of set it up like we put together like the hardware and the sensors and then it went you know there's a beautiful like web application and a smartphone application and none of the farmers had smartphones or internet access and so and they're like uh you know like if i need something somebody will just like email or call me and we're like oh okay <laughs> or facts facts yeah. Facts they probably have, right? Uh, yes, crazy. yes, yes. So it was, I mean, I think it's, it's, I mean, it is kind of interesting. They're like, like truthfully agriculture, like, like industrial agriculture is becoming very like data oriented. And so there is a lot of kind of um, automation and technology that's happening within it. But if you look in Japan, then a lot of the agriculture is kind of is at least in this area is small scale and um kind of done by uh just it's done traditionally like kind of so like you know that's, so it's I, really interesting because you don't think of <coughs> traditional agriculture like rice farming uh being able to use technology to make it more efficient but i visited 
uh, Kanimitsu Miso Factory uh, a couple months ago, and it was taken over, you know, like a very traditional company using very traditional methods. But the young couple who's now running it, he said he's done something with programming, hooked up his Raspberry Pi to something to monitor the temperature. And I thought, wow, there is a lot of ways that you can use like new programming or technology or hacking like you guys do in a way that makes it more efficient. So it kind of opened my eyes to that. It's wild. One of the projects we worked on um, with the International Rice Research Institute in the Philippines is actually um, monitoring the water level of the rice paddy fields to better manage the irrigation and also to help farmers transition to a, a less water-intensive method of growing the rice because the rice actually needs the water um, at certain times of its growing stage, at certain stages of the growing process. So, um, and there's other reasons why you flood it to sort of keep weeds down and so on and so on. But one of the reasons of being able to measure the water level means that you'll be able to irrigate when you actually need to. So you, you, you're using less water. So you see, you're starting to see more and more applications like that where it's something something as simple as the water level or simple <laughs> as the water level or temperature actually brings a lot of, of um, useful information to better manage um, and grow things. Yeah, that, that project actually was fascinating also because um, like like unless like not so many people are aware of the International Rice Research Institute but they're they basically work on rice growing techniques and kind of and teach like a lot of developing countries about like more efficient ways to grow rice and so this project was how to dry farm rice so rather than flooding and so and the reasoning behind it was that they felt that in the future due to uh global warming there's going to be like water is going to be more of a restricted resource and so people will need to learn how to grow rice in arid conditions and i think you know like and that's really fascinating too because they're thinking like 20 30 you know like years ahead and trying to figure out what um like how like growing techniques for the future and i think it's you know and they're also one of the one of the uh, organizations behind like the green revolution in india too that's really cool. So that is a perfect segue into monitoring the water tank of the Dalai Lama. Tell us about that. Oh, <laughs> um, so this was a project in 2012. Oh, I think we lost Jacinta. Um, she'll be back. Oh, this was a project in 2012 where uh, we, Jacinta and I went up to Dharamsala in the Himalayas. And this was a project kind of, we got put onto it by... Uh, uh someone from unesco and it was to uh like teach workshops to the local uh himachali and tibetan communities out in dharamsala and it happened to be where also the dalai lama uh the dalai lama lives and kind of gives his lectures um and so one of the like one of the uh like, or as part of the workshop to teach like the Tibetans about like how to use these sensors uh, was to install a, uh, a water level monitoring, like basically a sonar based water level monitoring system onto uh, the water tank that's for the Dalai Lama and his temple. And so it was, and that was really fascinating too, because we, you know, we had to get cleared by uh, security in Dramsala this is for the Tibetan community in exile. And um, yeah, and then, and I think a lot of the, the students were really excited to be, you know, be, to be working on a project that was actually quite, that there was like a specific application for it. And we ended up uh, installing devices uh, also for uh, like other, some other monasteries too, like the Tibetan Institute for Higher Learning, et cetera, et cetera. But sorry, what? I was just to say, the other thing that comes out <clears throat> from those sorts of experiences as well is that often um, there's, there's not as much as sort of the, the hacker community and the open source community are about knowledge sharing and so on. Often access to the materials, to the, the knowledge is more difficult. 
in different parts of the world. So one of the things that has become more and more important for us is is that kind of access, is that that sharing or teaching um, and doing those sorts of workshops. But then you're keeping in mind that well, can people get access to replacement parts and that kind of thing if they are doing things. So there's a whole there's a whole chain of consideration when you're looking at, at countries or in areas that don't have um, the infrastructure or the even the logistical supply chains set up in the way that, say, here in Australia, we do. Um, and apologies if my internet gets a little clunky. We've had some wild weather <laughs> over the past couple of, <laughs> of days. That's okay. We can see you and hear you fine. And uh, we've got two guests, so you can play off each other. Wonderful. Um, it's, a, it's probably a good time to mention your website, Hacker Farm, because you have uh, open source uh, links to tutorials and stuff like you mentioned there. Uh, lots of good information. You also sell some products. Um, I don't want to, I don't know how to describe them. Uh, they look like little gearboxes to me, but they do stuff. <laughs> Is that accurate? I, I, oh, actually, like, well, so, oh, it's like kind of, Oh yeah, we didn't expect you to mention the website because like we haven't updated the website in like Sorry. since the pandemic started. No, no problem, no problem. <laughs> We're like, it's like getting, it's it's like having a surprise guest when you haven't cleaned the house and you're like, oh. <laughs> so um, but yeah, yeah. like I, actually, I don't think, I guess we we have to look at it because we. I, I didn't know that we were selling stuff. So. Um, uh, <laughs> so. Maybe if you go to, if you go to, oh, it might be free collapse. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, if you go to hackerfarm.jp, um, there's there's some teardowns, there's some tutorials, there's some information about some of the projects that that we've been working on. Um, Freeclabs conservation.freeclabs.org is where we're also um, got some of the projects that we're working on, particularly with um, one in particular is called Boombox, where we're working with a, a, um, a doctor of behavior, a behavioral ecologist from Princeton University and she manages Snapshot Serengeti. Um, um, well, officially, other... she's a fear, fear researcher. Yeah. <laughs> is that like so. fear training? Like fear research? fear response in animals so she oh, studies uh, like yeah, like yeah fear. predator prey interactions and basically how how animals display fear it's but, I mean, absolutely fascinating but i think <laughs> i think for our audience to give them the impression we should show the video first can we do oh, that oh yeah. yeah 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 let's do that yeah 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 I'm gonna get rid of everybody because you need the full experience, guys. <laughs> yeah, this is great. So, can you uh, introduce this before we show the video? Um, I, actually, because uh, which 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 one are you gonna show? The one with the hyena or the one the with wild boombox in action? So the animals. Uh, so, basically, um, oh, yeah. so basically, basically, um, basically, um, the device we we created attaches to an existing camera trap and when a when the camera trap is triggered it plays an audio sound and records the animal's response yep oh and if you don't know what a camera trap is it's basically it's a motion activated uh video recorder and um and it's used to uh to it's used by researchers to uh, take videos of wildlife uh, out in the field <laughs> Zebras are chicken. <laughs> oh, that one's super cute. Oh, there's one after this too. So, just in case you. I'm not sure no. you, whether you could hear the audio, but um, we discovered that the only animal that walks towards a lion roar is another lion. <laughs> so <laughs> you're like, whoa. 
<laughs> Those lions are scary. So like, uh, uh, that is crazy. Like when I watched, <laughs> when I watched that the first time and the other video didn't work for some reason, I couldn't download it, but, uh -huh. um, it was, was it the hyena that ended up destroying one of the boxes? Yeah, it, 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 it's it the title of the talk. <laughs> <laughs> but they're really curious, and it's and this is what's really fun because when you're developing something, you're not considering that it's going to be eaten by an animal or the wires are going to be pulled out <laughs> by baboons, and so you come up with really interesting challenges, and then you go, oh, how do we kangaroo-proof this? Oh, we can't yeah. put, <laughs> have to put some snakes around it because they've got quite a strong kick and a punch. So. <laughs> But yeah. I had read about something like this just the other day. I don't think it was Japan. It was somewhere where they were trying to find ways to scare off animals from maybe farmland so they wouldn't eat the vegetables. Mm. And so they were they were trying this out as like a, an ethical, more humane way mm -hmm. to get animals away from where people are or where they might cause destruction for farmland or something. So there's a lot of very ethical knock-on effects to this kind of research. It's so fascinating. Yep. How did you get interested in, in this project or hired? Oh. oh, actually, before that one, like it's interesting that you mentioned it because we're actually working with a group, uh, the one of the national parks in Congo um, to use a device as elephant deterrence so that elephants won't raid farmers' uh, crops. Because that's one of the main reasons why uh, elephants get killed, is because the farm they keep on trying to raid farmers' crops and farmers trying to defend their crops. So, but so just as an aside, so yeah, so we're looking we're looking into like deterrent applications too. But sorry, that's sorry, great. Jacinta, did you? No, wanna... no, that's that's great because like in Japan we have a lot of uh, monkeys. Uh, oh, like yeah. I know an organic farmer in Shiga and he is battling like crazy trying to battle the monkeys and he has an electric fence. If he could use something like this, that would mm -hmm. scare, the, I don't yeah. know if monkeys get scared by anything, but yeah. <laughs> we, um, we actually, we have a place in, in, uh, Kamagawa, which is, um, an old Kaminka and it's on a, on a little mountain and has all this orchard land and farmland. And the monkeys come through and just clear out all the plums, <laughs> you know, all my plums like, like, <laughs> overnight. Just, just, just like, <laughs> oh, you monkeys. <laughs> yeah, so, um, when, I, when I visited Chuck Kayser, uh, it was his farm where he was having so much trouble with monkeys. And he said, basically, none of the animals want any of the salads. It's all the lettuce and everything, which is totally fine. And he's like, mm. I think it's only humans that like salad. Um, <laughs> but if it's anything else, they will just oh, no. destroy it all. Just go. Yeah. Well, and that's what's kind of nice is because we can, we've got this technology and we, we're trying it out on problems that are facing us as well. And then you find that there's other applications. But, um, but Akiva, did you want to talk about um, Boombox and how that one came about? Uh, well, like, um, so we're on this... Uh, uh, wildlife technology forum called Wild Labs, and the woman that we work with now, like um, who who uh, she's like a camera trap expert, and she's doing the fear response. And so, like, she had put out a call, like, "Hey, can anyone, you know, we I read this paper and they did this really interesting experiment. Can anyone help us design something?" And so, you know, I I was like, "Oh, you know." No promises, but we'll give it a shot. And so we designed it in collaboration with her. And then, um, and actually, yeah, the results were amazing. And so now we're expanding the project. Now it's, um, we're working with, I think, four more researchers uh, across like wolves and um, uh, like, I think in Mozambique, I'm not sure what they're studying. Um, but yeah, I mean, so the, pro the project is expanding. So, you know, it's really, it's really fascinating and like the woman the fear researcher that we work with she's such a badass so like whenever we do conference calls with her she's like yeah just you know i got a bit of malaria but anyways yeah let's you know let's figure the next steps out i was like oh <laughs> like, oh you're so awesome <laughs> <laughs> but what's, what's nice about wild labs um is that they there's a community there and they'll talk about what they're working on what sort of technology they're using and what they're looking for and usually um usually it's kind of bespoke it's pretty customized so what what and and again this is kind of hackerish in a way um 
what they're doing is that they're taking off the shelf sort of products and trying to adapt it. And so um, what we're looking at is how we can kind of create custom um, devices that sort of fit better with the kind of research that they want to do or that can build upon some of the existing um, technology that they're already already using. And there's lots of good groups that are doing different um, work, different kind of work in that space, which is really exciting to see. So part of what's fun for us is to collaborate with um with researchers and, and conservationists, because then we get to learn about their their subject and hope and apply it to say mountain house with the soil and the erosion, for example. <laughs> um, but then we're also demystifying a little bit the technology. So you, when you open up the the camera trap and you look at the circuit board, it's not like this black box that you're looking into. You can actually start to look at how you might be able to adapt it or or um, extend the functionality. That's really interesting. It reminds me of the talk I had with Jane Best of Refugees International, which is now Refugees Empowerment International. And she was talking about during coronavirus, one of the difficulties of supporting local groups around the world who were supporting refugees was technology. And a lot of them didn't have smartphones. They didn't have a way to get on a Zoom call. So there was a big gap there. So if your group is working on things that they have and how can they hack that to use technology, that's that's next level. That's awesome. Oh, also, yeah, I mean, like, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Like, we do a lot of work with, um, uh, like, well, we do a lot of work in like kind of uh, in the international international development domain also. So act, if you want, you can if you want to put us in touch with her, we can, you know, we can at least kind of uh, uh, we can talk to her. If we can help out with stuff, then we'll try and help out. And then, um, you know, and I think that if like if she needs stuff like like uh, like basic technology, like computers, like, you know, for Dharamsala, you know, we ended up shipping out like uh, 60 computers for our workshops out there um so but japan is is really interesting because they whenever a company uh whenever corporations kind of upgrade their computers they basically just give give the old computers to liquidators that sell them for like 30 dollars like three thousand yen four thousand yen so you can get a lot of really good laptops for uh, almost like nothing here Wow. And the other the other interesting thing with Japan is that some of the infrastructure things issues that we see overseas, we we also experience locally. You know, we we um, we're managing a property where the bores would the bore would um, break the the water pipes basically, so the water would stop. Um, yeah. And so that also happens in some of the places that we work in as well. Oh. Or the septage trucks. No, I mean not here in Japan, but but so we're able to actually. Um, test out some of the, the stuff that we're developing locally in yeah. the countryside before it goes to deployment overseas. That's we, crazy. Well, we were on a World Bank. Like, so it's like Japan is such a country with so many contrasts, but we were on a, we were on a project with World Bank in like basically like in like the remote rainforests on the border between Panama and Costa Rica. And so this is a, a place called Changinola. And then um, we were auditing their water infrastructure, and they just had these like crappy PVC pipes that you know would get would break all the time, and so they had these constant water outages. And we're like, "Oh, you guys have those too? Yeah, we have them in Japan, and like in our you know at our place." And then we just end up talking with the villagers about you know like like you know like how to deal with stuff like that. It's and we talk with the world you know the World Bank uh, water specialists too. But it's just it's. It's really interesting because Japan is a super developed country, but there's a lot of places <laughs> which are like, like, like third world conditions as well. So yeah, well let's let's talk about um, the World Bank project in Egypt because I thought that was really interesting using technology to monitor for safety for the water system and to kind of deter people kind of cheating and dumping sewage where it shouldn't be. How did how did that project go? Can you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, Jacinta, do you want to talk about this one? Yeah, so, um, so the World Bank um, is also working with the Egyptian government um, on a much, much bigger infrastructure project to connect villages to a septage system um, that's 
to update and to connect past some villages to systems. Um, our technology component is a, is one aspect of that bigger project that requires a whole lot of um, redevelopment, infrastructure development, but also, um, I guess, social behavioural change as well. And because there's real economic pressures, like people don't people don't usually willingly do stuff like this. There's economic pressures, there's life pressures that, that are um, facilitating this kind of behaviour. So the technology that um, we we were we went on as an advisory role to explain what kind of technology was available, but also to um, develop a system that would monitor the GPS location of the septage trucks that would pick up the septage, um, and then look at where they would dump it. And the way that we did that was by monitoring the liquid level in the septage truck, so you could actually see where it was being discharged and map that to a to a location. And from that, that could then send an alert and escalate. Um, escalate that to through whatever channels were, were set up in place, um, and it and it's just fascinating because this is the other thing too that's sort of um, sometimes difficult is to to kind of get our head around is because these projects are five ten years in development, 15, 20 years. So you know the infrastructure to be built, all that kind of social change, behavioural change, all that will um, takes time, and so our piece of technology slots into it but often you may not see the results or it may not be implemented for you know five years or ten years or but there's so it's because there's so many different elements i think it was i think it was also really interesting because you know like we were brought on like you know we were brought on to solve like a technical issue which is like to to use technology to prevent illegal dumping of water uh, septage into the Nile River, but actually the technology was the easiest problem to solve because we had to navigate like po politics. Um, we had multiple meetings with government ministries and officials. We, you know, the picture you're showing is just into talking to the villagers who are complaining about, you know, not being connected to the sewage network. I think, um, and it's you know, and the thing is that. And the solution that we developed would have to be rolled out countrywide. And so it'd be like kind of on all the septage trucks in the country. So we had to help them figure out how they're going to locally manufacture it, you know, and um, and source and source and maintain the uh, components for it. It was so it was it was just like this, you know, it's actually the technology was the easy part. <laughs> like we got that working like, you know, yeah. in a couple months. But yeah everything else just took a long time and it was it was a massive project it was like 500 million dollar infrastructure project uh in aid package for the through the world bank so it was just there was a lot of moving parts to it i think that's the other interesting thing too is that it's not often um you can get a prototype you can get a pilot going pretty quickly um but the effectiveness of the technology there's so much more involved. And even in the wildlife community, we've seen that as well, is that you can you can do the prototype, you can get it collecting data, you can get it in a, a site pretty easily. But beyond that, how do you maintain it? How, how accessible, how long will it last? So one of the things that we focus on, especially when we're doing, say, courses or um, showing people how they might build their own data logger, for example, using Arduino because it's open source, um, <laughs> is to look at not just not just getting the code onto it and going, oh, look, I can you know, monitor, I can trigger the PIR sensor, um, but how would I actually get it into the field and how would I actually maintain it and how it, all those sort of logistical things. So the... And, and the different considerations, you're looking at power, you're looking at how heavy it weighs, you're looking at access to it when you've got grubby fingers or wet fingers or you're looking at baboons. And so <laughs> the technology, the actual technology that's used kind of tends to diminish as you go along and all these other considerations come into it. Yeah. Yeah. But, that's, but that's a really important question that I, I think you must have to think about 
is the ethical considerations. I mean, a lot of what you do with SafeCast monitoring radiation so that it can be open source and anybody can access the data or anybody can get the data. There's always gonna be, what is the argument? Like junk in, junk out in terms of technology, right? Like you have to worry about somebody using the technology which is intended for good in a bad way, right? That must always be something you have to consider as part of the process. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Exactly. Um, I think for Safecast, <clears throat> um, there were there was like, I actually there was multiple uh, ethical issues that we had the way. But one of them, of course, was like you know like we'd be monitoring radiation, and then there was one area that suddenly one of the sensors just suddenly went super hot. You know, and all these people in the area started uh, messaging and trying to contact people at SafeCast because one of the sensors was like basically spiked. And what had happened was that the air conditioner was dripping water onto it. <laughs> it's just like kind of, and so it just caused. Um, sorry, there's a mosquito here. Sorry, I I'm I'm very anti-mosquito, but um, there, it so basically it was just a malfunction. And so, but the thing is because there's an audience of people that rely on that information, then we actually do need to like think about how to keep, you know, like it is a failure if it malfunctions because people rely on it, you know. Luckily, it wasn't like life, um, it wasn't like, you know, like a life and death situation. But um, another, another thing that we had to grapple with for SafeCast was uh, the government didn't want us to publish any data. And so um, it, to the point where they would threaten uh, to arrest us and basically anybody that was publishing data without kind of the government's permission. And so that was like in the early days, like right after the, the disaster. Um, and so like, and when they, when they publicly announced that, you know, like there would be legal repercussions for anyone that was associated with the illegal dissemination of information regarding radiation, then um, we lost all our sponsorships. We, um, you know, like we had to grapple with, okay, so like this is the contingency plan if there is like kind of uh, legal issues. Um, and basically, yeah, so, and there's threats of arrest. So like, um, I think there's, there, there are, there are like considerations to think about when, when you, when you, especially if you're dealing with like monitoring and data, you know, and especially for something like for SafeCast with the radiation data, it was <clears throat> that was very politically sensitive too. So like you know, and there's you know there's a lot of so yeah, there are things to really consider. It would be it, similar it for environmental uh, monitoring as well, right? For a polluter or you know like some company that has a lot of power and this is not only in japan but even even for me like talking about beach cleaning and what kind of trash we're finding and sharing that data you know i i know that there's certain organizations which are creating that trash which have a lot of power so if you're creating something that's going to apply more transparency to society and to our environment to make it safer for everyone. But there are interests which don't want that information shared, right? That's a interesting dilemma. Yeah. Well, oh, sorry, just until you. I think data more and more. Am I frozen? Uh, I, I can hear you now. I think um, data more and more is becoming, it's becoming such uh, an important and tricky thing to deal with and ownership of the data because even if we look at it as something if we develop devices and we're deploying it somewhere who owns that data and and so and it's a thorny issue there's no clear um consistent way for that to be um discussed or looked at but i think the imp important thing at the moment that at least from our position is that the accessibility of the data, at least in its raw format, is really important because that becomes part of the way that um, people learn and understand about a particular issue. And you can have different viewpoints on the same issue based on the same data. 
Um, so even going back to the, to agriculture, a lot of the big ag people are moving into the data, especially climate data, because of how important that's going to how important grown when what kind of seeds work and all that those sorts of things. So I don't think it's an easy issue, but it's a really important one to to be talking about and to um, trying to address in, in the way that, that resonates with with views that, that individuals hold, at least for us. Yeah. Um, should we switch gears a little bit and talk about entertainment? Because it's not all heavy oh. stuff that you guys do. Let's talk no, about we, we only do heavy stuff. Michael Jackson sneakers. I want to hear this uh, story. Go uh, ahead. So, Jacinta, do you want to talk about this one? Or uh, at least the start, the Michael Jackson concert, the tribute concert? No, you, you go, you go, you go. Uh, okay, no, you go, so, you go. You, you, one, you talk, you talk. Well, one of the first projects for Tokyo Hackerspace that we took on was our collaborative projects was, this was like kind of just after Michael Jackson had uh, passed away. And so the Jackson family were going to do the, uh, I believe it's the This Is It uh, Michael Jackson tribute concert. So they were on a tour and um, we were contacted by one of the choreographers who wanted us to help out and kind of, do something uh, novel for the finale. So Jacinta and I and a couple other people were putting together a lot of different ideas, and we came on came up with the idea of using uh, electroluminescent wire on clothing uh, when wirelessly controlled. Um, due to like like Jackson family politics and things like that, like the concert got uh, called off. And so we kind of shelved all everything that we developed, you know, and then, um, but interestingly enough, it got resurrected in 2000, uh, 2012 when um, we were contacted by a, an Osaka based dance crew called Wrecking Crew Orchestra. And they were looking for um, tech, you know, they were looking for uh like interesting technology to uh, to control lighting on their costumes, and they were actually because they were already prototyping it, and they were doing they had like switches, but they would like manually control these switches in order to like kind of have the effect of having the lighting kind of synchronized to their dancing to the music. Um, and so we we're like, oh, actually, we developed something like that already, you know, and then, um, so you know, like. Should we should we give it a shot? And it turned into like um, the Wrecking Crew Orchestra EL Squad, and the EL stands for Electroluminescent. But um, and since then, we've uh, like or they've done like multiple like kind of large performances. You know, there's like a bunch of uh, like commercials and and appearances, music videos, and uh, next year. Well, depending on the pandemic situation, then it looks like there's going to potentially be a tour, uh, like a tour across France as well. So it's uh, wow. it, it is quite it's quite interesting. It was, it's really <laughs> fun. Awesome. It's, it's I, really... think I, I think I saw it on America's what? Next Dance Group. Was it was oh. that your technology in work or was that a, a different oh. different thing? If it was in the U.S., then it was probably uh, a different group. So there's a couple groups that are like kind of that play around in this space. But I, the tricky thing is that you would need to have like like dancers, and you would need to have um, engineers, and there would need to be a pretty tight collaboration, which is why it's not done so often. So, <clears throat> so sorry. The, just the really fun thing with the technology, though, is that Wrecking Crew of Rick have really pushed it they've really pushed it and now it's just hit <laughs> the limits and but they've also they've they fixed their own devices and and you see this yeah. understanding of technology so the conversation changes a little bit and they're like oh can we do this what about if we want to swap out the batteries this way can we do that and so you, <laughs> you just so um what's nice is that we're starting to work a lot more collaboratively um but they they 
push it pretty hard. So it's another form of rugged technology. <laughs> it's not environmental, brought on by humans <laughs> this time. <laughs> Dan. Oh yeah. Oh, it was really interesting because we'd be we'd be uh, prepping for a TV show, and so during the rehearsal, you know, like one of the engineers would say, like, "What kind of wireless are you using?" You know, like, you know, it's illegal if it uh, we won't allow it if it interferes with our wireless microphones, and so. One of the guys pulls out this, it's called a portable spectrum analyzer, which basically tells you the free, shows you the frequency that like say like the, of anything wireless within, um, within the area. And he shows them, oh yeah, see your wireless mics are at 800 megahertz. We're up here at 915 megahertz. So it should be fine. And, and this was from a dancer. So the engineer was just like kind of floored. He's like, uh, uh, okay. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> That's awesome to have the young generation understand the technology as well as the engineer. I love it. <laughs> I, th I think What's it's really. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry, you keep going, Akum. Oh, well, I just, I, I think it's like, it, it is the context. Like for these, for these dancers, there's, you know, like it fits within their worldview of dance, you know, and I think that like the technology uh, kind of, complements the dancing and so like they're more willing to learn it and i think that you know and so they were just like they just they were like sponges just absorbed it all i think that's the same too when you look at the wildlife community because the boom box which was the camera trap add-on came out of a, um, a system that we developed for uh, a card game we and board game that we were developing um using nfc stickers um, and so the audio playback then turned into Boombox. But you see that like part of the, the fun stuff, it, it all merges into each other in the way that you can adapt and repurpose different kinds of technology. So even though it seems kind of left field, you then end up using the same sort of device <laughs> in, in a completely different context. And the, the really fun thing with working with people that are really interested in the their domain, whether it's dance, whether it's board games, whether it's um, wildlife research or whether it's conservation, is that they'll, they, they do want to learn it, but they're really focused on how it can benefit what they ultimately want to do. And I think that for us is really rewarding to talk to people like, like that because there's the context there. So you don't sort of say it's sometimes we solution and we're looking for a problem. And so it's sort of an inverse of, of that where actually <laughs> this is a problem. <laughs> um, so it, it does all tie in. The threads are all there, even though sometimes you're not quite sure how they how they link up always at the beginning. Oh, and for for that. a bit of yeah. for a bit of background. So Jacinta runs a publishing company and wrote a series of children's books. And so we're developing a board game to go along with it. And then we got a little bit crazy, added um, electronics. And so when she mentioned NFC, so NFC are basically the technology like in Suica cards uh, and Passmo cards. And so we're we're having fun playing around with like, you know, well, what if, you know, the card game could actually be sensed electronically and like what, you know, how would we, how would that change the dynamics? And so we, I think we, we kind of, we have a lot of fun with our stuff, like our designs too. But that's so good and that's so important for anyone yeah. who's trying to do social good or environmental good. You also have to branch out into maybe things that'll pay a little bit better. Uh, you're not, <laughs> you know, like you have that balance of high price tag items and maybe some pro bono work, you know, so oh. that you can make a living because <laughs> having the people place, people, planet profit balance means you have to make a living as well to keep going right well, um yeah it's, a it's actually backwards so we we uh we do a lot of the projects the environmental projects and things like that in order to pay for the projects like working with dancers who are like who you know generally <laughs> there's not much budget involved like they're like dancers are usually struggling and then and then well, that's interesting. Yeah. That's like the the ad the opposite of the YouTube model, right? <laughs> like like things that are going to be entertainment value are usually the ones that they go after for the big bucks, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so. 
And then and board games. Board games are like a money pit also. But it is it is sometimes yeah. <laughs> the board games are it's just fun. But it's also it's something that um ties in a little bit at the beginning when we were talking about um moving out say to the countryside is that one of the things like it like it's a it is a bit of a a lifestyle choice because one of the things is to try and keep your base costs low. So you have less financial pressure to um that you need to, or less, you, you you have more flexibility if you've got your base cost, cost low to take on projects that might be a bit riskier or that might not say necessarily have the financial um, benefits that you would get from more corporate um, gigs. It's, I wanted to mention um, before we move on, the UV light, the uh-huh. treatment for the masks. Uh, yes, Since yes. it's coronavirus time, I thought that was an interesting project. Can you tell us about that? Uh, this was back when, like, this was around last February slash March when kind of everyone was still like, what, what is this, you know, what, what is a coronavirus? And, um, and nobody was really sure how it transmitted. So, um, and this was also when there was like a huge mask shortage and the, uh, health workers were basically, you know, reusing their masks and, you know, and it was a bit of a, like, it was a, it was a difficult situation because you couldn't really, you couldn't get masks at all. Um, so me and, uh, some other people at Hacker Farm were looking into different ways that we could kind of help out, you know, at least some ways to, to work on, help out with the pandemic effort. And so one, one of them was to, um, uh, use UV light in order to sterilize, uh, masks for reuse. And so we're, we're, we're investigating it. We built up a bunch of prototypes. Um, and we, you know, we, we purchased like the germicidal UV fluorescent tubes and we're testing it out. But I think since then, you know, there we we've learned that uh, COVID passes via aerosols through the air, and so like um, and there isn't a huge worry about surface contamination, which is basically we're designing a system that would do like room level uh, surface decontamination, which ended up not being really an issue. So. Yeah. But I think it was the, interesting. At the time, some... it was it was really important technology because wow. we didn't have enough PPV, the protective clothing. We didn't have enough masks. Uh, people were unable, you know. So there was all this talk about wash your mask in your rice cooker. Oh, oh you yeah. See it? You know, no, thank you. Um, so I would much rather use your technology. That sounds better. Well. <laughs> Well, the really interesting thing is that actually what's come out of that now is that um, one of the other members of Hacker Farm is 3D printing a lot of face shields um, for some of the medical centres. And so she's getting requests continually saying, can we get another 100? Can we get another 200? And so the 3D printers (laughs) are churning. So it's, and this is what's really interesting about having the tools is that there's the tools are there and so what's the application what's what's the need and so it's it changes too so yeah Uh, that makes a lot of sense i was listening to the ocean cleanup group which is based in amsterdam and they were they have this great technology which gets uh plastic waste out of the rivers and they're trying to scale it so it can go rivers around the world because 80 percent of all the ocean plastics comes from the rivers we know Mm. that um but they said one of their first machines had a bespoke piece of equipment which took ages to replace because it was handcrafted so in that case you need someone like you guys who would be able to maybe work with 3d modeling machines or something and make Mm -hmm. that one piece which is broken um there's just so many things from all your different projects that you're doing which hopefully you'll be able to take that concept Mm -hmm. and apply it to future models um like you said that's awesome Oh, I think I think that's um, that's one of the goals for uh, like wildlife conservation and also environmental monitoring, which is that um, like I think is creating 
uh, new tools that basically new tools and skill sets for like the next generation of say wildlife conservationists or um, or uh, people that are doing like one of the big things we're working on right now is um, technology for uh, conservation land management. And so, and there's this organization in Australia called Bush Heritage that ma that manages 30 million acres of land. And so, and, you know, and we're talking with them about how can we baseline it. And oh, I guess maybe Jacinta, do you want to talk more about that? Because <laughs> like, you're, you're handling that one mainly. <laughs> uh, it's, um, there's this, there's a basically there's um, old depleted farmland um, a lot of that um, bush heritage run now and manage and so part of their efforts is to regenerate and rejuvenate but also to kind of look at um, changes in climates that might be in the next 50 to 100 years so one of the sites um, that they're and they run a series of experiments and uh, um, and we're talking to them about how we can develop different kinds of monitoring systems that might be related to soil, air, water, um, and even water levels um, in different creeks and streams so that they're able to quantify and gather the data but get a, gather it remotely because obviously with that much land, going out and manually looking at or manually collecting the data from, um, the, from the census station is simply not viable. Um, so, so that's actually really, really exciting because it's it's really long term. It's there's a clear need and clarity around the benefits that the kind of system would be able to bring. Um, we're, and we're losing losing oh, you, Jacinta. Uh, do think, you wanna you wanna catch up? Yeah, so we're okay. that one. Oh, so, well, I think um. Well, just to f finish, you know, because just to explain most of it, but I think uh, one of the larger goals really is to develop a toolkit for not just Bush Heritage, but for people that are working with conservation land management. And basically to, uh, and the, ma the main problem they deal with is how do you quantify uh, ecological health? Because normally conservation land managers are trying to either uh, improve the ecological health or to nurse kind of depleted lands back into a healthy state. And so what we're trying to figure out is um, what kind of parameters can be measured and remotely monitored, you know, and these are like in areas that, you know, like we're working with satellite uh, communications companies because they're like just way like beyond any kind of cellular availability. And, um, but basically how can we determine ecological health? And I think that one of the goals that we're hoping to to come out of this is that we can create a standardized way, you know, a standardized and kind of uh, a process and calibration techniques to standardize on ecological health for specific terrain types. And then that way everybody can start sharing information and, um, you know, and building, building a scaffolding for, uh, you know, and improving just like kind of the general knowledge of that kind of thing. And that's, that's one of the big projects that we're working on right now. That sounds really exciting and really important uh, in in many ways. Uh, that is our hour, guys. Oh. <laughs> yeah, we seriously Yay. talked about a lot of different topics <laughs> and a lot of different projects, but there's so much more that I want to talk about. I want to hear more about the in, entertainment. I want to hear more about oh. the card game. Uh, so we'll have to get you guys on again. That was awesome. Thank you so much. Sounds so, great. Thanks. Thanks for having us. It's really great. That's great. And I'm so excited for all the innovation and all the technology and all the collaboration that you're doing, not only in Japan, but around the world. So thank you so much. And please don't burn out. Take some time for yourself. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So definitely, I think like uh, during these pandemic days, like we're trying to take care of our mental health as much as possible as well. Yeah. So. yeah. I think programmers like you guys are especially difficult to turn work off, right? Because your job is to be on computers and when, when do you turn off technology? It's hard, right? But please try. Uh, 
And uh, take care of yourselves. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You too. Thanks. So. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so okay. much for joining. And uh, if you have any questions or comments, please make sure to write them below and we'll try to respond, even if you didn't have a chance to ask them while we are live. No problem. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm actually talking to somebody in an hour's time. Uh, in the UK, she is a garbage collector. She's an ambassador for Keep Britain Clean. So she has been documenting all this litter that she's been collecting over the years. She's a writer. It's fascinating. So if you have time, please join us again in one hour's time. Thank oh. you so much, Jacinda. Thank you so much, Akiba. That was great. I, I want to know what a raider is. That sounds fascinating. <laughs> um, did I say raider? A writer. She's oh, a writer. writer. Okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> She's a writer, but also a writer collected. Did I say raider? Maybe in my mind I'm thinking raider because she's oh. awesome. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> sounds, sounds, okay. sounds really interesting. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you so much and take okay. care, everybody. And uh, join thank us you. again soon. Thanks for joining today. What was your favorite part? Why don't you write a question or comment below and I'll reply or I'll get the guests to reply as well. Um, if you liked this video, please think about sharing it, liking, subscribe, comment, join to support the series. I really appreciate your support and your enthusiasm for seeking sustainability wherever you live. And I really hope that this talk show series can give you new ideas, new insights about innovation and different topics which are connected in some way to creating a better quality of life for people, better quality of environment, and getting enough income and still supporting the economy. I always appreciate the comments and questions. So if you have anything to say, make sure you write it below. I'd love to hear from you. Have a great day. Take care.